Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at the Aerospace Corporation? And how does it use innovative approaches such as strategic foresight and futures thinking to meet its mission? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Kara Kunzman, Lead for Strategic Foresight at the Aerospace Corporation's Center for Space Policy and Strategy. Kara, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start up from the beginning. What is the history and mission of the Aerospace Corporation? Yeah, so um, we've been around since 1960. Um, we were actually stood up to help provide objective analysis or analysis to serve the Air Force and some scientific and technical planning and management of missile space programs. Um, and we were established as a nonprofit, which was really important uh, because we had such a, you know, a, a, a pretty in-depth role with the government and they wanted to make sure that there was a body uh, in place to provide objective analysis. Um, and since then, we, you know, our role is, is kind of always been, you know, to provide, you know, mission success for our customers. But over time, you know, we've we've kind of, uh, you know, leaped to different hard problems of the generations, right? So we've supported, you know, making launch happen and the Gemini program. And um, we were uh, one of the key thought leaders and, and makers of GPS, which we all know and love. Um, if you have a phone, you use GPS if you didn't know that. Um, and now we're kind of embarking on um, kind of the next generation of hard problems, which really is all about, you know, broader enterprise mission success and the role you know, of commercial and how that's changing. So um, it's been really, I think, fascinating to watch, you know, um, the the history of aerospace and how that's evolved. But, you know, the whole core of what we do hasn't changed. It's been enduring. We serve really as that independent nonprofit voice for the government focused on, you know, providing those deep technical analyses and assessments across, you know, a variety of, of space and national security um, areas and we solve hard problems that typically industry and government can't. And we bring objectivity, which is really important as we're making these big decisions for the government. Yeah, I can test to that. It's really good, interesting stuff that on your site and all the work you're doing. I, I would like to talk about the, the center you are part of within the Aerospace Corporation, and that's the Center for Space Policy and Strategy. What does it mean to be a federally funded research and development center? And maybe you could tell us more about your center's uh, uh, mission. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, you know, I I run strategic foresighting in the Center for Space Policy and Strategy, which is kind of a edge part of our organization that is specifically focused on you know trying to leverage this vast um, breadth of technical expertise that the broader aerospace corporation kind of brings to the table, and really inform you know timely and independent um, insight and analysis to help formulate effective space policy and national security policy. Um, so we are kind of in this really interesting place where we're able to bridge and bring together um, players across the enterprise and really kind of move some conversations forward 
you know, I think with an end goal of, of hopefully having, you know, more proactive anticipatory type of policymaking. That's great. What about your role? What is the responsibilities and duties of a lead futurist for strategic foresight within the center? And, and more importantly, how does your role within the center really help inform the mission of the Aerospace Corporation? Yeah, you mean what? What is it like to be a space futurist, right? <laughs> That's right. It's great. It sounds like a wonderful job. Oh I my mean, gosh! Really. I yeah, I definitely I think I definitely have one of the best jobs in the world for sure. Um, yeah. So you know, my job really is to you know lead this uh, amazing team of experts and critical thinkers. And really, I call them the A team, you know, because we're at aerospace, but they really are. I mean, they're the brightest minds who help us think about um, systematic approaches of, of really weighing possible futures, given that we are in um, you know, an era of, of uncertainty and complexity, um, and how do we help empower decision makers to shape towards more aspirational futures today? So you know, the goal of the work that you know, I lead, it's not to predict the future by any means of the imagination. Nobody can do that, and if they can, if they say they can, definitely run the other way uh, because they can't. <laughs> um, this is more really about adequately challenging our assumptions, um, building better visions for where we want to go, more intently focusing on actions in the present so that we get there, rather than just kind of you know going along with the flow or reacting. Um, you know, to the kind of like here and now, because we could be missing some bigger opportunities. So I think that part. Um, is maybe the most um, interesting part of my job is that, you know, we're really change makers, right? We're seeding transformation. We're challenging the status quo. We're looking for better ways to do things. That's wonderful. You know, it's really, it, it, one of the things I noticed is uh, within your work that you've put out there, um, you, you're really taking on the tyranny of the present. I, I kind of think that folks are so stuck in the next, whether it's the next budget cycle, the next procurement, and it's really interesting to get uh, to get that that space you need to think and kind of scenario plan for what could potentially be uh, the near future. So, um, tell us more about yourself, and you know, what do you need in terms of skill set to become a futurist, and you know, what skills would benefit somebody who's engaging in this kind of work? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you would have asked me, right, like <laughs> even, even several years ago, if I would be doing what I'm doing, I, I, I you know, as, as a futurist, I probably didn't even know what a futurist was. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a trained uh, engineer. I have my master's in aero and astro engineering um, and have been really working in the space and systems engineering arena pretty much my whole career. Um, I've been with aerospace about eight years and um, was brought in kind of as like a fairly green um, but different thinker into some internal projects, um, looking at, you know, how do we seed, um, you know, meaningful cutting edge kind of science and technology investment given limited resources? How do we think about um, making sure our nation stays ahead? Like big questions that we were teed up with. And what I found was is that there were a lot of folks who were looking at these problems, trying to solve what I consider strategy problems with engineering or technology solutions. And, you know, I've always been a big picture thinker. It's just, it's like literally in my DNA. Um, it's just who I am. Um, I get, you know, I get a lot of those great features from, from my father. 
And I knew I didn't have the right frameworks or the right training, but I was curious enough to start asking questions. And those questions started leading me to real answers. And that's kind of how I came across uh, this, this new thing called strategic foresighting. Uh, it's not really a new thing, but it was to me. And I uh, was lucky enough to have somebody to, to just tell me, you know, go get smart in this. And so I got certified in strategic foresighting at the Institute for the Future. And they knew about this place because they taught at UC Berkeley and they got coffee across the street. And uh, IFTF always has interesting and thought provoking, you know, posters up. And so she's like, I don't know what they do there, but like, just go there. And um, I remember sitting on the first day and, you know, all sorts of people um, come from around the world with, with a variety of different reasons, either for business or nonprofit purposes, but they're all united in, in the way of how do I help my organizations navigate better under uncertainty? And so for me, that was like a big aha moment. Um, the tough part was, is that a lot of what is, um, you know, traditionally and academically founded in the practice of strategic foresighting is definitely more in the, you know, liberal arts arena. And so how do you translate what that means to those that are more technically oriented, those that are more data-driven? So that's really where my work began because there's a, there's a gap, right? There's a gap with how you translate these kind of very like open-ended, uh, big picture concepts. Um, my favorite quote from, is actually from Jim Dater, world-renowned futurist father, honestly, one of the, the founding fathers of futurism over at University of Hawaii, Hawaii, there's no future facts. And that is like so hard, right, for technical organizations, because everything should be fact-based. Um, that's what the scientific method is, is, is based in. So um, that's kind of how I got into it. And then, you know, I've just been diving deeper and deeper and looking at the actual feasible implementation of how do you tee up and consider not just probable, but also plausible, possible future states. And what does that mean? What does that mean for your organizational investments, your policymaking, your messaging, like investments, like all of the above, right? Um, and so that's really kind of, we started building out those frameworks. And I think because we're in the application space, we're not just like admiring possible future states. That's what is helped us be so successful because we're able to kind of take it all the way from concept to reality and action making. Um, so Kara, what, what has surprised you since taking on this role? Oh my goodness. This is a great question. What has surprised somebody that is supposed to be um, not surprised, right? Um, well, I'm going to be perfectly frank here. I got two big ones. Um, I think the first is... Um, Maybe it has a little bit to do with uh, how impatient of a person I am. <laughs> um, I think the amount of grit and tough skin that you need to have to do this job well um, is pretty overwhelming. Um, ever since I've, I've started working this, whether it's convincing my own leadership, um, uh, skeptics within, you know, the organization that you're trying to get to work for, you know, work on projects to customers to, to just, you know, general conversations. There's so much resistance on looking at the future from a different lens. You have to really be convicted in doing good work in providing objective perspectives, um, 
I see a lot of foresighting work. We call it weaponized foresight, <laughs> where um, people go in and they already have an agenda, they already have an outcome, and they try to shape the activity and the insights and the findings to that. And our team fights tooth and nail to make sure that we are truly objectively from a balanced perspective, you know, there's bias everywhere, but I think being transparent about where, where that's coming from is an important part of the process. And exploring and thinking creatively about solutions that maybe aren't already on the table. So for me, that the amount of grit and uphill battle, I mean, again, I just, I'm one of those people who's really stubborn and I keep going. Um, but when I started off, I mean, I never would have thought I would have had to put this much energy and time into that. So that was one surprise. And now I've kind of, you know, I, I think maybe I've matured in the sense of like, okay, like this is going to be a long haul, but I'm in it, right? I am in it to win it. And the people who are on my team, we all have that same mindset. Like this is not easy. And if you cannot get validation from anybody but your model on which you think you're doing good work, right? Like if you're doing a good job, your bosses are probably unhappy. Your customers may not always be happy because you're telling them things that are counter to the current trajectories. So um, that was kind of a slap in the face. I think the other one that I'll just briefly mention is when we were working on, and we'll, we'll talk about this here, I think in a bit, our, our futures map for the space enterprise. We actually called out a series of potential critical shocks and one of them was a global pandemic. And it actually happened. <laughs> and I can, you know, again, getting back to like, you know, surprise the person who's not supposed to be surprised. I mean, you can say it's a disruptor, um, but until it happens, until you see how it, you know, completely cascades into a whole series of follow-on consequences, you don't really believe it. So I actually think I'm going to look back and think that that was a really important and critical moment in both my personal and professional life to just really understand that like we can wave our hands and talk about alternative future states and talk about radical futures, but the radical does happen and we need to be prepared for that. Yes. Uh, it really goes into the thing when I was preparing for our conversation today, I was thinking about a lot of the work that you're doing, and particularly that anecdote you just shared around being able to pivot, being agile, and building this in to a culture within an organization, embedding it, it's in a DNA. Um, and it goes right to strategic planning, it goes right to the core. You can't just simply think about what's going on now. And I think the current situation, we, you know, the aftermath of the current situation we're dealing with really underscores the importance of the, of the discipline you're bringing up. And I love the, the, the mindset you just talked about around if you know you're doing a good job, if you're pissing people off because you're forcing them out of their comfort zone. And it's a wonderful place. So it kind of leads into this next thing. When you're doing, when you were getting together in this role and really forging your team, um, I was wondering what are the characteristics of an effective leader to do this? And maybe you should could share with us uh, some of the leadership principles that have inspired you and, and any lessons you've learned. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Another great question. I really, I think we don't talk about leadership enough and how hard leadership is. And, that, you know, I'll go back to my previous answer on grit. I think that's a huge, a huge one. Um, I think also just, um, and, and a lot has to do with the systems that you're in and the incentives that drive you as what you 
feel comfortable and or are able to do as a leader. But I personally think that the great leaders that I've seen have really taken on to think not only about the systems that they are operating in at present, but the systems that they want to build and create to make that better future. So thinking about like, how are they actively going to see the transformation to get there in their tenure and be willing to have the courage to move against the momentum um, is probably one of the single most important leadership traits I see if they want to make progress towards transformation. Now, unfortunately, right, like not everybody's in there to do that, right? They're in there for other purposes. Um, And so I think the good leaders, particularly those that are transformational leaders really strive to do better, to demand better, and to think about the future generations that follow them that will be working and hopefully they're creating opportunities for them long after they're gone. It's that long view mindset. Um, But unfortunately, you know, the incentives that many of our organizations, whether in the private sector or academia or in the government, you know, they just, they don't support that, you know, at present. What is strategic foresight? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Kara Kunzman, Lead for Strategic Foresight at the Aerospace Corporation's Center for Space Policy and Strategy. Uh, Kara, what is strategic foresight? You know, can you help us understand how the discipline of strategic foresight can inform and develop long-term strategic planning, visioning? And again, this is a multi-layered question, but to what extent, and I think you hinted at this earlier, to what extent is it not about predicting the future and more about anticipating aspects of uncertainty and testing those assumptions? Yeah, well, it's really funny. I feel like I feel like the word foresight is actually very intimidating. I can't figure out why. Um, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it's honestly like if you take one thing away from our conversation, right, it's just a fancy term for making better decisions under uncertainty. That's all it is. It's really quite simple. Um, in practice, right, it's it's the application of systematic tools and methods to help identify emerging shifts and implications and then translate those actions to help field better future outcomes. So, um, and when I say tools, I mean, you know, for those, again, that are in the scientific community, it may not necessarily mean a, a you know, a large calculator, but it's, it's usually like, you know, mind maps and different types of 
ways which you can facilitate, you know, groups of people to think deeply about the future and then harness those insights to drive, you know, actionable outcomes. Um, so it really is just, um, I think, a nice compliment to help enhance and improve strategy and visioning um, as we are um, in what we call a VUCA world, which is that's a military term, but it's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And so we live in this environment, which is highly connected, um, you know, digitized and else, you know, elsewhere. And we, I think the pandemic really highlighted just how highly connected we are. Um, so it's time to upgrade the operating system for which we employ our strategies, for which we employ our decision-making. And I think foresighting really is that foundation to help us get to a place where we can navigate this critical uncertainty. So I know we kind of chatted about this before we started the conversation, but I was wondering if you could tell me more about your work uh, around the Pathfinder's Guide for to Space Enterprise and highlight some of the efforts and core themes in this and maybe your foresight team. How do they go about getting this a guide and this map together? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Like <laughs> it seems like forever ago. It was just three years ago. Um, this was so much fun to make. So our team really wanted to create a product that speaks to not just, you know, where government space is going or the commercial sector, but really holistically like what are the possibilities of the future space enterprise? And how do we start getting a more collective um, discussion around those possibilities to highlight, you know, critical either policy advancements that need to happen or investments or thinking about, well, what kinds of strategies would be better for us as a nation or as, you know, humankind than others, right? So big, big, big picture. And we wanted to do something that was immersive and visual. Um, so there's a couple parts of that, right? Like one is, well, how do you use the practice of foresighting to actually get the content? And then the other is, you know, how do you display that content in a meaningful way to a wide variety of audience, some of which may not have background on space? Um, so it's it was very challenging, actually. So we, you know, put together, you know, different set of tools um, and employed them in various workshops. We had over 70 participants within aerospace, as well as a lot of great contributors external to aerospace to help us think through, you know, what are the trends? What are the emerging disruptors? What are the potential interesting future scenarios that we should consider as we're putting this together? And we kind of from that, you know, we, we did several series of these, right? So we spent about six months just having roundtables and workshops and, you know, thinking about uh, where the future could go. And then we started to distill common themes and common messages. And, you know, I can walk through those here in a second. Um, but I also think we had, that it was a really important piece that made this a success. We had our media team and artists sit with us from day one to listen to the conversation. And so they were there like with us hand in hand working on different models of communication. So we had probably seven or eight different ways we wanted to frame this up. And then we ended up landing on what was kind of a cheeky, you know, uh, printed out hitchhikers, you know, guide a little nod to the hitchhikers guide, right? Like pamphlet. Um, 
and then and then of course you know we we went on to create a more immersive version that that you know digital that we coded in unity because we wanted a digital you know more digitally um digestible uh, product because the pandemic happened and then we weren't going to conferences and handing these out. Our initial thinking was like somebody would physically take this pamphlet and like put it up on their office wall and look at it every day and get different ideas. Um, so, and, and then, you know, kind of the next phase of that was like, well, how do we make this accessible digitally and more digestible? So then we had it more like a navigation space and we have embedded videos with experts around the world talking about what they think the future is going to look like. And maybe my proudest uh, piece of it is we actually asked the future about what they thought the future is going to look like. So we got lots of K through 12 and early career and college students to also weigh in on that. Um, so I think, you know, you can, we can certainly put the link in and have people go dive into that. But I, I would say the two kind of important critical uncertainties identified across all of that, we're really looking at the degree in which space is going to be quote unquote commercialized, right? So the degree in which space and the economic value and ecosystem that would be built could stand on its own feet. Um, and then another critical uncertainty was really looking at the evolution and potential transformation of global power states. And you can interpret that in a variety of ways, right? You can interpret that in, you know, how does great power competition and nation state, um, you know, competition pan out. But also there's a lot of other um, nuances and dynamics that are emerging in terms of, you know, as the world becomes more digitized and, you know, as, uh, you know, common interests kind of surface above uh, where you are geographically, but also how governance pans out as we look towards off-world living and what that could look like. So those were the two kind of like really important critical uncertainties. And then I think these are the most fascinating pieces out of all of this, which rises above space, which is we are literally on the precipice of, I think, redefining or having to uh, clarify what does it mean to be human given the changing landscape in general and super artificial intelligence, um, given the advancements in um, biotechnology and genetic modification and our role in the universe. And so I think this is really important as we step back and think about futures. Um, and then also, what is the role and critical kind of jewels of space that we haven't really thought of yet that we could take back home and take with us wherever we go in the universe. So things like what new value could come out of a booming space economy, what kinds of you know, national advantage and prestige from the activities we have, how could space help us solve some of our hardest problems back on earth and with humanity, like climate change? You know, There's definitely some interesting, I think, roles in which space can help us get to a better place on earth and help heal, you know, some of the, the damage that we've done. So these were kind of the two kind of critical, big, deep aha moments that we had from this work. Um, and you know, certainly encourage folks if, if they like visuals, you know, to go look it up afterwards. But I, I think it's important to kind of share like a lot of effort and activity goes into 
making these seemingly simplistic but very deep insights. You know, they don't just happen overnight. It takes a whole army of, of really smart people to kind of hone that in, um, you know, to get to get to an endpoint like that. You kind of hinted at it, but what was how did you how did you build these layers and really develop this this map? Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, I always go back to the basics, right? So there's, you know, something we call the FIA cycle in uh, foresighting, which is foresight to insight to action. And so we leveraged a lot of kind of that framing. So the first part, you know, of foresight really is all about, you know, horizon, we call it horizon scanning, which is scanning for signals of change. So thinking about, you know, what do we know? You know, what are the drivers for the trade space you're looking at? What are the emerging disruptors? What are the trends? Um, but more importantly, how do those um, potential disruptors that are kind of on the fringe, right, that people may not even fully be aware of, how do those converge and create new futures? And some of those may not pan out, but it's all about exploring kind of the edge of what's possible beyond, you know, what we what we think the current trajectories are. And then developing, you know, scenarios, um, what we call artifacts of the future. So like, you know, physical, tangible objects that might exist in those new future states, personas, and then weaving those into um, kind of like those critical uh, themes and seeing how they kind of like fall, if you will, on the, the map. So we intentionally, uh, and this was a big struggle, right? We intentionally did not have a year tied to, uh, you know, the the frame of mind we were looking at. Rather, we looked at waves of development. So what do we think is happening or already happening based on trends and signals? What are the secondary kind of waves that we would expect to see? And what are the third waves? And we kind of modeled it for those of you that are familiar with how we think about advancements in artificial intelligence, right? They, they have this three-wave model, right, where you start with narrow AI, and then you move into general and then super. Um, so that's kind of how we were thinking about space as well. And I think that was really important for us because that gave us the framework to kind of lay everything else, um, you know, into it. But, you know, as I mentioned before, once you collect all of this data, it still takes a really smart group of folks kind of like sitting around trying to draw these different models. And we had seven or eight different models and then finally just settled on Maybe, you know, at the time it was a great idea, but like I said, you know, the pandemic happened and then, <laughs> and then we, had to, we had to kind of update it. Um, but we thought it was a really, I mean, again, it looks simple. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of content, like it's overwhelming when you first open up the map, but it's a 2D map, right? It's fairly simple considering the trade space. And it, it, looks, it looks simple, but it was not simple to try to like distill all of that into a single graphic. Absolutely not. I mean, just the layers upon layers of information there. But it's it's a real it's a real treat to try to navigate it, even uh, online. So it, it was it's a wonderful thing you guys put together. I, I want to switch gears a bit to the Space Agenda um, twenty twenty one report, um, and in that report, which I think the Aerospace Corporation puts out, uh, it raised a number of key issues and decision points for policymakers to consider. I was wondering if you could highlight your contribution, your, your the, the foresight contribution to this and some of the key issues and decision points. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just as you point out, I think we, um, you know, we try to publish uh, uh, what we call the space agenda report every time a new administration comes in, just to give them kind of like a, you know, a quick, here are the key issues in, in policy. And it's been really, it was interesting for me because they brought us in, um, 
you know, after this respective uh, individual chapters were written and said, what do you think of this? And so I looked at this and I was like, you know what, this is a great opportunity for us to just, you know, call it as it is, is it's pretty clear we're at the precipice of some major changes in the space enterprise and this lack of kind of a collective vision for where we want to go nationally is, is really actually a huge detriment to the future kind of opportunities for space. So, you know, for example, we hear a lot of like frequent narratives on like, why are we spending so much money on space? Or it's only the billionaires that are determining where we get to go. And we have so much here to kind of fix at home. And, you know, the truth is, is like, there is this whole other narrative that a lot of folks don't see, which is the current value that space provides to society, but also the potential new value that it could provide in solving Earth's problems. You know, things like food insecurity and and understanding our climate and healing it and democratizing access to the internet and reducing scarcity of limited resources here on Earth and creating unlimited green and clean power. Like, the you know, the list goes on and on and on, right? So here I was, you know, thinking about like, well, how do we how do we tie this all together? And I mean, they brought me in because it's like, well, of course, strategic foresighting can be that operating system to help us, right, start to achieve uh, a little bit more clarity on where we want to go and align all these kind of disparate pieces. And more importantly, lay in into a roadmap, you know, what are the most urgent things that we really need to take care of now, which I think we'll probably have a discussion about that one here in a second. Um, <laughs> um, and what are things that we have to start seeding because we know they're coming down the line and we know that it's going to take some really hard work um, to get there. But more importantly, what are the frameworks and systems that we're going to put in place so that we can start to adapt and respond to obstacles on the road as we go, right? That's more important than fixating on a single thing. It's the operating system that's most important to get right. And so anyways, that's kind of what, you know, the roll-up chapter was all about was like, there are, I think there were something like 21 different space policy issues that need to get addressed and they're all equally important. And the question back is, where are we trying to go? If we don't know where we're trying to go, how do you vector check, you know, how to lay those all in into a, a bigger plan? Yeah, and that kind of leads into my next question. Like, how did you seek to, to use the discipline of strategic foresight to explore the key issues of the space agenda? Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think, you know, when I first saw the list, I mean, they're all over the place, right? And they're all, they're all important. And I think that, again, just did justice to like, wow, this is, this in and of itself is an indicator that like, we've really got to be a lot smarter in about how we approach this um, and, and how we identify like, okay, well, you know, what's the end goal? What's, what's most critical? What are we actually, what are the transformational hard problems that we need to start thinking of now? Um, so like, for example, right, I think one of the things that we looked at across all the issues was, again, the same critical uncertainty we found when we were doing our futures map research, which was the degree in which economic viability of the commercial sector in space, it is literally a core and essential foundation to whatever we do in whatever aspect um, at a national level. We just, bottom line is like, we can't screw it up, right? We can't screw it up. And, and what are we actually, what are we tangibly doing about it at present? Um, I think is, is one. I think another kind of key cross theme across those issues was risk tolerance. Like, 
we are starting, and I know, I mean, a lot of this probably to your listeners is, is it new? Um, but again, it gets to what are we doing about it systematically? Because we know we're going to have a lot more players, a lot more options, a lot more, um, you know, uh, services that we can buy off the shelf and we need to go faster. The environment requires us to go faster, both from a business competitive landscape, but also from a national landscape. And what are we doing to make sure that we remain relevant? And part of that has to do with rethinking how we look at risk. So that's like a, I think a really, you know, two really important things that I saw, you know, kind of across the board. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great points, especially the risk one. You know, um, I want to switch gears a little bit too to managing the growth of space traffic. If we can talk about that, you know, well, when you when you when you think about it, what are some of the key dis- questions decision makers will need to ask themselves in order to sort of determine a path forward as they manage the uncertainty we've talked about and the potential disruptors in the field of space traffic management, which which really is important to think about, and how. Are you applying strategic foresight to answer these questions? Oh my gosh. So this is like, this is a great case study, right? Like a real, it's in real time. We're walking through. It was a great foresighting case study, right? Space traffic management and congestion is definitely like, it's, it's, it's almost like, I know we, you know, we talk about whatever crazy animal color, you know, pink flamingos or gray riders or whatever obnoxious animal that's standing in front of you where you know you need to do something about it. And, you know, a corollary is cyber, right? Like cyber security is one of those things that is always going to be there and there's never enough. I mean, this is, we all know it's going to be bad. It's actually already bad, uh, depending on where your threshold is. Uh, but even if it's, you know, wherever your threshold is now, <laughs> um, it's going to get way worse. And yet nobody is doing anything on a, you know, and I, I don't mean anything. I mean, I, a lot of people are working this, but like there is no tangible actions being made right now to make that situation better at a national or an international level. It's totally bananas, right? Um, I think there have been great um, technical, statistical models. You know, a lot's coming out of aerospace, but also other institutions that, in, are clearly showing it's not an if, but a when situation. Um, and, you know, definitely speaking to some scenarios that would maybe accelerate or decelerate getting to that inevitable point. But just knowing that that is coming, I mean, that should be enough, right? Um, and and so yet we don't do anything because we don't have the right um, organizational uh, incentives in place. There's not really clear authorities. We're literally still working that out years and years later. Um, So it's absolutely a leadership problem. Um, And, you know, on the flip side, you know, my thinking is like, if we can't even protect the space commons, something that we all agree on, uh, then maybe we don't deserve to be there. And so, you know, talking, these are hard, you know, these, these are hard questions though, right? There's a lot of smart people looking at this problem, and yet we're not making any progress on it. Um, so this is, you know, almost a challenge on the flip side that we see a lot in foresighting is like, I actually think uh, pretty much everybody that looks at this realizes how bad it's going to be from a foresighting perspective. It's the action part. It's moving from what do we do about it in the present to help either reduce, mitigate bias time, come up with more creative solutions for, you know, for alleviating that. And and there are folks, you know, doing that, but are they doing that in a holistic, you know, 
whole of nation way, whole of, you know, honestly, world way. Man, that's the leadership vacuum there. You, you know, I want to switch and get your insights around another topic in this area. And that's um, the, the national security uh, issues around space and weaponization of space, space deterrence. What are some of the questions that um, national security space policymakers should sort of think about um, in order to calculate how they navigate these uncertainties? And, and how can you put some strategic foresight uh, you know, discipline to this, to this topic. Yeah. I mean, I know I keep repeating myself, but I think for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a top-down person. It all goes back to what is our end goal? What are we trying to achieve? Um, both, you know, obviously we can talk about at, at a national level, but a national level for space. So if we're trying, you know, one, one viewpoint could be, you know, we're trying to extend peace, prosperity, and freedom of movement to space. Um, then we better get you know smarter about shaping the norms and be leading where we need to to drive that future, and and that is not an uncontested place, right? There's lots of different viewpoints and parties about how that should look. Um, at the same time, we don't want to get driven into a race to the bottom, um, and I think that is really really important. Um, I think a critical piece here that not many folks are thinking about as well is when we actually get to a point where humans are present in space, this is going to get even messier than where we are today. Um, and really thinking about that thoroughly. So I would say, you know, that should be a critical question that I think, to be honest, um, you know, I work in the space enterprise, I deal with pretty much every aspect. And I think there's a laugh factor, honestly, among the government about when human humans will be present in space that are not government led programs. And I'm, telling you it will happen sooner than I think we, we all think it will. Or at least one of the futures we, sh we, sh we should be considering is that it will happen you know, much faster than we think it will. Um, and it's gonna be a shock. It's gonna be, a, I think, a rippling shock across all of this. So I think governance models are gonna be really important to get right if we wanna see the things that we hold true to pan out in space and to not cause problems for us back on earth. So. Those are the things that I start, you know, thinking about is, you know, how, what are, what are our end goals, right? And, and are we being forced into, you know, certain narratives that aren't really serving what we want to achieve in the long run? Excellent insight. You know, I, I want to put a bow on this in terms of the discipline. So from your perspective, Kara, how important is it for leaders or folks who are doing the work to ask the right questions? look for potential inflection points, whatever they may be. As you said earlier, use the discipline of scanning the horizon, develop insight, and, and yet ultimately be prepared to take action to move, even if it's incrementally, toward a, and this is key, toward a preferred future. How important is that going forward? And how, how can we make that part of like a strategic planning discipline? Oh man, this is gonna turn into my manifesto. <laughs> um, it's a work in progress, you know. I'm still, I'm still, I'm still just getting started. Um, I, I mean, to be frank, I, I think if we don't do this, transformation is not going to be able to happen. Um, if we don't solve those hard problems that are holding us back from the greater things we could be doing, um, or we're not being prepared for, you know, some of the pretty big disruptors that we know are going to head our way, this really is essential to both our survivability and also what I like to call our thrivability, right? 
just because we're surviving doesn't mean we can't do better and we should strive to do better. Um, so this, you know, go with the flow, like take it as it comes mentality that is just common rhetoric in the West, particularly in the United States. I think we all got to look at ourselves and be like, is it working? But like, really, is it working? Right. Um, and also I think the other side of the coin, which is, um, well, I'm just going to invent my way out of the future. Right. I, you know, you hear that a lot, like you want to, you know, you want, you want to have control over the future, just invent it. But I think there's this missing component, which is if we don't do it together and we don't take in that broader consideration and context for societal implications, again, we're going to lose sight of where we all really want to be. You know, just because you create a new product or a new platform um, or a way to shape the way, you know, society's, you know, thinking or doing that doesn't necessarily mean that it's helping us achieve our end goal. And this is why I think there's, there's a major disconnect and, and ripple here. Um, you know, I'm gonna get a little personal, right? Like I have a three-year-old, I'm expecting another one. And I constantly am thinking about what are the future opportunities they will have? And what is our generation doing to ensure that those will be brighter? Um, are we doing enough? And there's this pit in my stomach on urgency, right? I, I mean, I'm constantly looking at how the environment's changing and the signals that are telling us this is not good enough. And it, the future's not going to get better on its own. It's going to take a lot of hard work. It's going to take a lot of leadership. Um, and I think if we don't rethink the way that we look at decision-making, um, we're going to lose the opportunity to be able to shape a future that we want. What is Project North Star? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Kara Kunzman, Lead for Strategic Foresight at the Aerospace Corporation's Center for Space Policy and Strategy. So I, now I'd like to talk about a, a, a project of yours that you're, you're moving forward on currently, and that is uh, the Project North Star. What is it? What prompted its creation? And uh, what are some of the core goals, and how does it hope to achieve those goals? Yeah, so um, so I think you guys are already starting to see some of the themes that have popped up from our space-based research. Um, 
but yeah, we we are just embarking on a project called North Star, which I guess has a I guess a cheeky name since I, I do have space background. But it really is all about trying to illuminate a set of aspirational futures for the nation over the next, you know, 50 to 100 years, even beyond that, that can really help serve as like this core universal foundation or tenets that help us withstand the test of things like the things that are getting in the way of progress, like political terms, infighting, um, propelling the lo- you know a longer uh, set of enduring goals for the nation. So really trying to figure out where are we going collectively as a nation, because we don't have that right now. And then outlining a potential set of grand strategies. And, you know, I think in the context of this, we're not thinking, you know, grand strategy is not just a military context. We're thinking a completely, um, you know, comprehensive, domestic, international, like, again, all fielding and helping us wield our efforts towards where we want to go. And considering that there is a pretty highly uncertain set of future states ahead of us, some that we can imagine and some that we need to push ourselves to imagine a little bit further um, and drive those into the types of collective investments, resources, and urgent decision-making that need to happen. Again, um, hoping to bridge the divide from what we've seen get worse and worse over time You know, on the political spectrum. There are things that unite us and there are things that need to get done to see transformation. And we have no mechanisms right now to actually do that well. So our project really is, you know, trying to, to help illuminate what those possible North Stars could be, what the future states we need to consider, what possible resilient strategies are for the nation, and then just highlight that work. You know, we're not expecting to come out of this study with the perfect answer. There is no perfect answer, but we're trying to build a broader, more collective perspective on where we want to go. You know, and, and, and I think that that's an important thing. And I was wondering, as you were building the concept of Project North Star, what were some of the key assumptions that you baked into it? And for a futurist, to what extent do such assumptions inform or actually hinder the process of envisioning future scenarios? Oh, this is a hard one, I have to say. This is a, it's definitely a challenging one. Um, because you got you got to draw the swim lane somewhere, um, and so I think there those are some foundational ones for for sure. Like you know, the first is is that like a world in which you know America and or like minded allies and partners are leading is a better one is a better one for the well being of humankind. Um, that democracy, of course, in its widest form of interpretation is a valuable form of governance um, and that we should, you know, as citizens seek to look and advance and improve and maybe potentially reinterpret what that looks like. But it, you know, far outweighs the benefits of other types of regimes like authoritarian ones. Um, I think, again, understanding and assessing that the complexity and changing environment requires us to come up with new approaches and how we make decisions collectively. And that a grand strategy, no matter how much you want to debate, and we actually have had great discussions with uh, some world, you know, world-class professionals on historical grand strategy and how and if it was ever implemented, right, in American history, that moving forward without one, uh, without a North Star, without a strategy to help achieve to get to our North Star, um, it's going to be very difficult for us to drive transformation towards where we want to go. 
and, and then of course, I think another one, uh, which is even maybe more contentious, which is that the United States is going to exist in some form over the next 50 to 100 years, which there, you know, I think a lot of folks have uncertainty over even if that's true. You know, so what's the schedule for this? It might be earlier on, but I was just wondering what what's your schedule for the project? And, and perhaps you can highlight some anticipated outcomes from this work. Yeah, so we um, we kicked off this project in March um, of, it's now 2022, it's July of 2022. And we have about four more workshops lined up. It's a invite only um, kind of set of uh, folks who are helping us. And um, once we complete those workshops, which kind of like all drive from, you know, where is grand strategy now? What are potential North Stars? How is the environment changing? What strategies are resilient against that? And then what are the recommendations we have back out to uh, at a national level in helping us see towards those North Stars that were identified? Um, we're planning on releasing a short summary white paper through the Policy Center uh, this fall. And, um, and then, you know, seeing where that takes us in terms of, you know, potentially running it again at a bigger scale and scaling it up, uh, potentially getting, um, you know, a diverse set of uh, thinkers and leaders across academia, the private sector and government to help really amp this up and lead it. So this is kind of a pathfinder activity. And our goal is really to like, get people to wake up and say, we need this and we need we need this big Right. Um, so so we're kind of trying to be agile and small right now, but our intent is, you know, hopefully our our findings of the paper and the process which we used uh will hopefully uh really get people to wake up to to see uh nationally we we need to we need to do this, we need to do this now. So Kara, what's the difference between envisioning your preferred future and merely reacting to it? And how does engaging in strategic foresight scenario planning help avoid the trap of a most likely future? Yeah. It's, and it's hard, right? Because, you know, same thing, like surprises in the eye of the beholder, most likely is in the eye of the beholder. Um, and you're constantly in foresighting work, doing a dance between being taken seriously, uh, that you have like a rigorous method, but also it's your job to maybe stress test, right? Uh, on what the art of the possible is. So, you know, I would argue like right now, I mean, all we are doing really is reacting, right? We're reacting uh, and we're reacting based on where we think the future is going. We have a very well-oiled system and organizational structure and mindset that really only allows us to, to react. And so we need to change the conditions so that we can start thinking more proactively about seeding that, that transformation that we want, but also you know, being prepared and resilient to it. Um, if you're only focused on that projected, quote unquote, most likely future, you're going to be wrong. And that that's bad from a multiple set of standpoints. One is obviously you're going to be surprised, but two is you're leaving this opportunity on the table to shape things for better. So Kara, before we close, what are the three or so key takeaways you want our listeners to know about the work you're doing at the Aerospace Corporation? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think maybe speaking just from a, you know, whoever your speakers are out there at an individual level, no matter where they are, um, I think we all individually can take and contribute to creating a more futures-oriented, long-view society. Um, you know, essentially having a pay-it-forward mentality, thinking about not just the immediate, but your longer future, but also the generations that come after you. Um, it's not easy. It's certainly not incentivized in our society. But if we had a shift in our mindset 
across the board at an individual level, at a local and state government level, at a federal level, at a corporate level, um, I think things can really change. And, you know, I think so, so that, so taking ownership of the long view can happen at an individual level. So I think that's, that's maybe one point. Um, I also think, you know, kind of going back to an earlier discussion we had, which was not all foresighting is created equal. So I, I think it's important that folks recognize, um, you know, who's funding the work, who's doing the work, who's participating in the work. Um, I think good foresighting is going to lay it all out objectivity. It's going to look at all the issues in a balanced way. It's going to critically look at the trade space. It's going to push to creative problem solving beyond kind of the status quo. And it's going to be transparent about that whole process. If none of those are true, uh, you probably want to be skeptical about that work. Um, so I think that that part's really important. Um, and then also, you know, foresighting is not foresighting. If you're not taking action in the present, it's not just about admiring the problem. It's about really implementing those insights into real tangible actions you can take today. And so one of the things I'm very proud of is the fact that like my team is, you know, got it, got its sleeve rolled up and we're taking, we're taking on, you know, making changes in real world programmatics and policy making and really trying to push the needle forward um, in, in an application way, which not everywhere, you know, not everywhere is able to do that or is in a position to do that. So I think that objectivity, I think having world-class experts, and I think that practical application is what is setting my team apart. Um, so I think we're just getting started and we're really excited to see how much further we can push things ahead. Well, I, I, that's an excellent way to end the conversation, Kara. I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join me today to be on the show. And I look forward to your continued work. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank, thank you so much, Michael. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Kara Kunzman, leader for strategic foresight at the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at the Aerospace Corporation. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington, WTOP-FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, defense department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. 
We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.